You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. When entrepreneurs decide they want to start a cannabis-based business, most likely they get distracted with the arduous process of applying for a license. But not getting the layout and design of their facility right can cost more to fix in the long run due to the legal complexities of the industry. Today we meet Brian Anderson, co-founder of Massachusetts-based architectural firm Anderson Porter. In addition to designing dispensaries, they have experience building pharmaceutical grade and compliant facilities that require safe and secure protocols. Brian shares valuable insights in what you need to consider when building a cannabis facility of any type. Let's meet Brian. How are you? Pretty good. Hustling, oh. hustling along like everyone else. <laughs> Uh, I just got back from Chicago. I went to the Benzinga show in Chicago. Mm, how was it? I lo- I've been to one of those shows and I loved it. Yeah. I skipped Miami this last, with the spring, I guess it was. Um, mm-hmm. But it was super high energy. A lot of really good people to talk to. Um, I think it's an area where, I mean, I'm going to be doing fewer and fewer of the sort of knee can shows where... Uh, we get a lot of tire kickers on a lot of serious folks and maybe try to do more MJ unpacked. I've heard a lot of good things about uh, brand focus because, you know, this is a CPG industry. This is consumer pack package goods. And I think that the capital markets that really are attracted to the Benzinga event uh, are, um, are good. So, you know, cause as architects, we're, you know, projects cost a lot of money and it's really hard for the small, for the really small investor to make sense of that. And so we found over time that our pitch really is best delivered to the investor mm-hmm. as opposed to the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur tries to keep their costs down. They want to be humble. They want to show that they're being prudent. And mm-hmm. so they would never spend the money on this architect. Oh my goodness. I'd spend the money on the cheaper architect over here. Yeah, That can backfire really quickly. Yeah, I, I agree. Benzica is probably the best because those are all the investors, all the people yeah. looking to start up those dispensaries. And, you know, you see a lot of investors in real estate people getting yes. into this, right? That's it's, right. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. a big REIT out of LA called IPP, um, IIP, sorry, International Industrial Properties. And they're making a big play in as a real estate investment trust. They're only investing in real estate, not in the operations. They're investing in the real estate mm-hmm. and letting the operator. Uh, so I have a now a line into them, um, but they started out in Cambridge. They were called uh, Biomed Realty Trust. They were investing in the real estate for the biomedical industry that is just driving the economy in eastern Massachusetts. And this group started as an investment, real estate investment trust, a REIT, and um, in the biomed area, and they moved to San Francisco, and they've been very, very successful. The same CEO now moved down to LA, and he started this IIP, in, in International Industrial Properties, 
to invest in the cannabis space, just as a real estate touching group. Mm, so interesting to see how people are moving around out there. Yep. Right, right. Yeah. Well, anyway, Benzega is you're right. That's probably the best event for, for you guys. I don't know what I've I've never been to um MJ Biz, the big one oh, in <laughs> that is it that is an event yeah that's an event i've heard i've heard it's like overwhelming i've heard overwhelming is really the word for it uh yeah. i started going in 2015 when they were just a few years old oh. and so yeah there were four thousand people at the rio which is a tiny dumpy hotel just off the strip and four thousand people that's manageable that's a big show but it's manageable so today, when there's 25,000 people, maybe even 30,000 people this November, um, I go there to strengthen relationships with groups that I know. So I'll do small yeah. ones with people that I already know in the industry. It's too much to try to take the whole thing in. You've yeah. got to bite it off in small chunks. But so I thought we could just start with you know, a brief overview of um, Anderson Porter, if you can just give us your overview and how long you've been in the cannabis space and who you've been working with and that kind of thing. Just a yeah, quick overview. So, um, yeah, these are exciting times. We started, um, I mean, I've been an architect for 32 years, but our company started uh, in 24, in, started in 1994. So in this next year, we'll be a 30 year, 30 year company. Wow. That's amazing. As architects, uh, Eastern mask, Cambridge. Um, we, 10 of these years, so the 20 years as a general practice and now 10 years as a cannabis focused, uh, practice. So we still have a section of our firm that is probably 30% of our gross is in housing, but 70% of what we do, 70% of our gross revenue is cannabis work. Uh, so we're 16 people, um, we're architects and interior designers, um, and we team up to do everything from full design build, turnkey de delivery services, to just architecture and interior design only. Uh, so we have a lot of different working methodologies. We don't just have one delivery model. Uh, so that means we can work with a great variety of people. Some people may already be builders, for example, right? Well, that wouldn't exclude us because we can work with them as builders and help direct the construction, help direct the design. Um, we spend a lot of time in front of planning boards as architects. Uh, we're, we're in early, um, meaning people are applying for licenses. They're applying to buy real estate. They need advice on, is this site going to work, right? It, can I get trucks in here? Can I, you know, fire department wants to know, can they get their, their fire truck around this building? Should there be a fire? So we can help in real estate selection, we can help in talking to the planning board to help around issues of noise control, odor control. Uh, we work with civil, you know, a lot of different engineering groups. So, you know, civil engineers, traffic studies, we can help assist in all of that work, uh, all of the pre-design pre and planning work, and then full design, meaning we can, you know, match your program and make sure that your um, KPIs and KPTs, your key performance indicators from a business plan perspective, are matching the program and are actually capable of producing in the facility. So that whether that be cultivation, so plant count, um, flower versus veg, clone, moms, all the parts in the, of the cultivation process, 
but as well after you harvest the plant, you dry it, cure it, and you manufacture it. So we do full manufacturing facilities. Uh, we've done standalone drink manufacturing. So, you know, infused soda waters. Um, haven't done any bottling yet, but it's similar to the canning process. Uh, we've done gummies and chews and vape carts and all the various panoply of, you know, you go to a cannabis store and there's just way too many products to kind of get your wrap your head around. And then on the pharma end, on the pharmaceutical end, um, really great story is we did a ribbon cutting in Mississippi this year uh, where, you know, Mississippi is only 3 million people, tiny state, but they have the highest per capita opioid addiction really? of any place in the U.S. And so the main indicator for opioid consumption in Mississippi, like many states, is pain. People present to their doctor or their pharmacist with pain and they get prescribed opiates. We're, we've made in Mississippi the facility Southern Crop. I'm very proud of them. We brought a gel cap to market, and the gel cap is in a blister pack. You know, a blister pack is just like your antihistamine medication. Push it up through that little foil top, and it's a gel cap. It looks like Advil, and you take it for pain. So literally, cannabis is being used as an off-ramp to opiate addiction. You, it's you being think... prescribed by the doctors and pharmacists in the state of Mississippi as an alternative when a patient presents with pain. That's amazing. So you built a facility for these, the people who manufacture this? Yes. That's, um, I, I didn't even know that was legal, but I, I think I've heard that state by state, I, I thought they're giving doctors the right to prescribe. prescribe. So Mississippi, that's so interesting. And oh, I You can that. find similar pockets all over the United States. New Hampshire, one of the neighboring states to me in Massachusetts, Maine, New York State, there's counties in New York State that are dealing with these same epidemics right. of opioid abuse. And the presenter is pain, typically. The thing, it's a toothache, it's a broken arm, a broken leg, back, lower yeah. back pain. Surgery. You name it. Right. So um, that is drug, that is the drug manufacturing aspect of what we do. So we came from the 20 years that I spent as an architect prior to meeting my first cannabis customer. We're in Eastern Massachusetts. So medical device manufacturing is what drives our economy. Medical and technology drive the economy here in Eastern Massachusetts like tech does in Silicon Valley. So every little industrial park in Massachusetts has one of these companies. So we've also worked with, at MIT in neuroscience doing uh, wet labs and dry labs. So that's chemical and biological laboratories at MIT. So we're familiar with you know, low margin, critical system design space, low margin in terms of in terms of the, the, the safety and protocols and securities that are required uh, and complex systems required in drug manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when our first customer in cannabis came knocking, it was nowhere near what they were thinking about. In 2014, they had no idea. They were asking us to build out of wood and they had no idea what they wanted to do in their lab because they didn't really know what products they wanted to manufacture. Today, customers are coming with a much more informed basis of what is their business plan. How many, they're, they're able to tell me how many gummies they plan to make in a shift. They can tell me, do they wanna make those gummies out of pectin or do they wanna use a different base? Do they wanna coat them in sugar? Like these are things that customers, when I say customers, cannabis enterprises have thought about when they're applying for a license. And each of those decisions 
has a has an impact on the facility that needs to be designed, right? So if you have raw ingredients, I really the architect really needs to know how many units are you going to intend to push out. So therefore, how much in raw ingredients do we need to store? Because you have very particular conditions in which you need to store those raw ingredients, and then how many employees and how many shifts actually make the numbers of units that you want to push out, and then how much is the primary packaging, the secondary packaging, and tertiary is you know the box that it all goes into and ships onto the down that conveyor line and into the back of the truck. All of that takes space, takes people, and that facility design is critical to the success of the business. That's, you know, it's it's so amazing to hear you talk about that because, you know, as an entrepreneur who's launching whatever medical or, you know, whatever they're launching, you're so focused on your product, your, you know, your brand, whatever business you're doing. Everything you just described to me, I would never think about walking through my facility and all those little details that you just mentioned that could get you in a lot of trouble if you don't have it sorted out in the right way. And it's because of standards and protocols. So architects deal every day with standards and codes, right? So you have a local board of health and that local board of health inspector is going to show up at your facility and they're going to inspect that facility because you're selling products that the public is going to ingest. Yes. And so the, the board of health has a responsibility to observe that facility before they give you what's called a certificate of occupancy, the right to go ahead and, and do this, right? Most people, rightfully so, they focus on get the license, get the funding. Once you get your license and funding, get the real estate, right? Um, but with that real estate comes all of these things, these regulatory and standard driven obligations to produce a safe product for the, for the public. You're really set, your company is really getting set up to be the leader in that. I mean, you know, pharmaceutical comes on board and things like that, and it's coming you know, when you talk about the tri-state area, New York already requires what's called GMP, good manufacturing practices, or GAP is good agricultural practices. So GMP, GAP, all of these are required in the state of New York, as well as New Jersey, as well as Connecticut. Massachusetts does not require it. Mm. And so you'll see different investments are required of the entrepreneur to meet the standards that the state legislature has identified. What we tell customers and tell entrepreneurs and developers, regardless of the state you're in, if you're a multi-state operator, go with the highest level of standard, even if it's not required in the state you're in. Behave as if is the term that I use. Behave as if, because this descheduling or rescheduling from Controlled Substances Act from a one to a three, one of the impacts of that would be that the FDA is now in another authority having jurisdiction over your cannabis business. And in order for them to sign off on your, in addition to the Board of Health, which is a state and local township, is going to be the township that you're in provides the Board of Health. But the federal government will now be responsible to send an inspector to inspect that you meet FDA standards. So you should always behave as if that's mm -hmm. going to happen. With so it's like a talking about FDA problems, but yeah, but like a gummy manufacturer, like even a yes. gummy, it's going to fall under the FDA. I never thought about that. Yeah. Vape cart filling, drink manufacturing, anything the public is going to consume as a medication, 
right? Yes. Is a is a drug your drug manufacturing? Yeah, I've been kind of intrigued by the whole FDA because they don't feel that any cannabis product, consumable product, is falls in any of their safety category pipelines of because they they don't have the proper pathway set up. It doesn't match any other drugs they're putting through a pipeline. That's what they're saying. That so. is correct. That is correct. And it's one of the reasons that major pharma is not likely to move into this space because there's nothing unique and patentable around cannabis. You cannot patent the, the, the THC molecule. So here in Eastern Mass, we have all the major pharma, right? New Jersey has got all the pharma. New York's got a lot of pharma. And pharma's interested in unique patents to solve a or to cure a really narrow and rare disease because you can charge the most amount of money, sometimes fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a month if you can cure a disease that nothing else can 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 manage. Well, cannabis is way too generic mm -hmm. to charge that kind of money. So the pharmaceutical industry is not that interested. This is more of the nutraceutical industry. This is herbal extracts, right? So be a whole lot, whole aisles at Whole Foods full of the competition in the herbal extracts market. However, if you know anything about nutraceuticals is they always balance along this line of FDA approved or not approved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's, you know, some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them talk about efficacy when in fact they're not actually, there's been no drug testing. And so the efficacy is not provable. All of this is about trying to balance the line of cost versus uh, profit on cost of goods produced versus profit uh, and how much regulation the government is going to, going to require. We urge everyone to behave as if not because of how pharma regulates what they do or how they make investments, but rather because you don't want to have to face batch recall. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have to recall a product. You don't ever want a death to happen because people are ingesting this as a medicine. Even if it's sold as a retail product, people self-medicate. And they should have an assurance that the product is safe. Right, right, right. Wow, so interesting. So the biggest question I'm sure you get asked all the time or that I've actually been wondering about is why is it so expensive to build out a dispensary? And I'm thinking compared to say a big like restaurant, you know, big, you know, that's a big build out. You know, a restaurant can be usually they say like a million. It's almost like the same. I guess maybe it is the same. I guess I've always heard 500,000, but, but I, I mean, besides all the complicated stuff that we're dealing with in the cannabis industry, is it just basically that that's what's jacking the price up? Is it? So think about a restaurant in the same way you think about a, a retail store. You, you, you really have two buckets to pour money into, maybe three if you include design, right? But it's after design and when you get into construction, one is you have to bring the building up to code mm -hmm. and the cannabis industry has typically, and I speak from certainly here in Massachusetts, been forced into a corner by local planning boards. Local planning boards have stigma. And because of that stigma, they're like, why don't you go over there? Go, why don't you go around the back and put your store over there? Well, guess what's in the back over there? Some raw space that has never mm -hmm. had retail in it. Well, now the, now the entrepreneur, the company, has to bring that raw facility up to code. They might have to put in handicap ramps. They might have to put in insulation. They might have to put in new plumbing system, new electrical systems. The public doesn't see any of that stuff aside from the handicap ramp, right? It's, those are not public facing dollars. 
those are all embedded in infrastructure that if you don't own the property, you'll never get back, right? There, you could call those landlord required upgrades. Yes, yes. Hopefully you can negotiate those costs with landlord, but you know, the, you know who, who wants to pay all that? So one of the reasons that there's a high cost to dispensary work is because oftentimes there's an underestimate of what it's going to cost to bring the building up to code. I've been in stores that have two different levels and they're like, no, we want to level this out and have one level. That means you're, you know, raising the floor level on half the building and you've got to make sure that the curb, the curbs and the sidewalks on the outside can still get in. These are things that get, these are costs that get buried and unfortunately contribute to a high dollar. The other side, the other bucket are brand driven decisions, lighting, casework, color, floor materials, ceiling materials. Um, you know, everybody wants an Instagram moment in their retail store today, right? So you'll build out this cool, whatever it is, right? Those are, those are exciting things to spend money on. Whereas the other things are less exciting to spend money on, right? It's fun to think about visual merchandising and environmental graphics and the sign that goes on the outside and the signage on the inside and maybe telling your brand history you know, on a wall with 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 graphics or um, finding ways to display the bud in special things so you can smell the flower and you can interact with the customer and finding out new new uh, electronics you can use, how to sell from iPads and how to how to encourage people to buy online, pick up in store. Those are all the sort of e-commerce technology and environmental design aspects to architecture. That are that are brand focused and brand driven. So that's half. That's part of your budget. It could be, if you're lucky, more than the cost to upgrade the facility. Meaning you're spent. The majority of your budget is spent on brand driven decisions. If you're lucky, and only a small amount of money has to get spent on back of house stuff, adding another bathroom, uh, building out a ramp so that people can get in and out of this thing. So if you have a good real estate team that can find something that's called vanilla box, it's a retail term in the retail industry. Vanilla box just means that it's it's prepped and ready to go, right? The, 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 the air handling units are there. All you got to do is move some ducts around, right? You got to build some walls internally, sure, fine. But the basic shell of the thing is all tight and good. Um, that's hard to come by. Real retail prime. So... In New York, I'd say there's a lot of it available. And, you know, if you work with a good commercial real estate agent and give them a good tight list of requirements, you can find, you know, you can find, you know, you're going to be in the plaza across the street from the Walmart, right? You're going to be in the plaza next door to a restaurant. Uh, that's an ideal spot to be. You don't want to be tucked around in the back where you've got to renovate the building or build it new from the ground up. You want to be on a strip where there's a lot of street traffic, there's a lot of foot traffic, or if you're in the five boroughs, you know, you want to be on a street with a lot of other retail. As far as um, the DASNY, uh, I'm not sure if you could talk about that at all, like the opportunities in New York. Sure. Uh, well, that's that's really apropos, right? Because they the, the window opens uh, but, Thursday. Yeah. Wednesday. Yes. Tomorrow. Wednesday, the Wednesday. fourth, right? Today's yeah. the second. So the fourth. Yeah. Um, holy cow. Yeah. This has been most of my week last week and this week. Um, 
Oh, that's right. You're right. Because you're doing, you're part of the DASNY team. Is that how I would say it? Or you're. So the window that's opening now, the license application window that's opening now is outside of DASNY. Meaning DASNY has. Oh, no right. Right. Because of the injunction. Yeah. Well, not just because of the injunction, but DASNY is really just a public benefit corporation administering a fund. And that was the social equity fund. Right. So that's. That's the CARD, the C-A-U-R-D, the Conditional Adult Use Retail Dispensary License Program. What's opening up on Wednesday is the OCM's general, come on, folks, let's get to, let's get to work, everybody else, right? So anyone who may well be a social equity, they may well have spent time in prison unjustly, there's a huge social justice component, but they're not going through DASNY. They're saying, I don't want to be part of that. I want to do this on my own. I want to find a place in Poughkeepsie. I want to find a place in the Hudson Valley. I want to find a place in Schenectady and I want to build out a retail store. So that is the op or, or cultivation facility or a micro business or a manufacturing business. Um, those are the licenses that are opening up now. So it's exciting times. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the OCM has regulations. Uh, they just published some FAQs, some frequently asked questions or answers to, to, to FAQs. On Friday, I haven't had a chance to read through them yet, um, but uh, we are actively reading through them in our office to try to make sure um, that uh, when needed, we can support those license applications as well. Because right. what we spent with the DASNY program, although separate, is very relevant to new licensing in the just under OCM guidelines. In terms of retail properties, Believe it or not, DASNY has never been in the retail game. That's not what they do. So retail is brand new at DASNY. And that's maybe been part of the, the bumps of the rollout today or these past year, uh, maybe. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're good at what they do, but retail is not traditionally what they've been doing. So... Um, but um, I know that you also promote sustainable design. Um, and um, I'm just wondering... Uh, how you incorporate that, or is that even affordable for cannabis entrepreneurs, just given the high cost of entry into the industry? Is it affordable to do sustainable design? Are people doing it? And what do you really, really, you know, as an advocate of wanting to do sustainable design, what do, what do you It's. Work? I mean, when you look at the economy and you look at global conditions, how can you afford not to be? Right. When you look at, you know, how the fires in Nova Scotia and across Canada affected New York State tremendously, you wonder how can we afford not to be sustainable? Right. So at the next level, so I would say to anyone, you can't afford not to be sustainable. Um, we have re so from a retail perspective, retail is tricky because it's hard to it's hard to promote a cyclical economy in the retail environment. Retail is typically a linear economy where one business goes out of business, what happens? They rip it out, they put everything that was in there into a dumpster, and they push that off into, into a landfill. And now the next business comes in and builds out that, in, that interior environment with entirely new products, flooring, walls, ductwork, electrical wiring, right? We just ripped out what the last tenant did five or 10 years ago, but those five or 10 years, that store sort of, you know, 
degraded and got worn and wear and tear in the retail space is normal and so you rip everything out and you start afresh so first off you know retail is really hard to be sustainable in retail mm -hmm. very hard to be truly sustainable in retail so but we but it's important to continue to try so energy and, and sustainability lighting is sustainability um and the other thing that's hidden but i i talk about a lot is that the turnover rate in employees in retail is around 55 percent and if you think about the cost of acquiring talent as a retailer it's enormous you do job fairs you do you do background checks you do um qualifications uh you do training then you do you know getting them you know fit up with a badge and the software impact by the time that person is ready to, to stand behind the counter and sell product you've invested over half of their yearly salary so to have them leave right within half a year is an enormously expensive endeavor so you think about sustainability on many levels so you wanted to try to design to promote job safety job security job enjoyment right mm -hmm. so you think of, you need to think about sustainability you know the term esg environmental social governance so environmental are these things like materials and energy right social is how are you providing jobs where there previously weren't any jobs are you providing good jobs that have paying wages and then governance do you know does the business have an actual you know employee handbook where you know you're providing equal you know equal pay to you know to, to genders you're providing opportunities for you know for everybody and do you have those written down as policy so that's the governance side of esg but those when you look at that from a from a global perspective there's ways that retail absolutely needs to uh, participate in the in, in the conversation manufacturing and cultivation have energy impacts uh, that are much more glaring and obvious uh, when you look at them so yeah and water right i and mean water, water yeah. and cultivation i'm sure there could be some great uh you know elements you can include in the design for cultivation and and manufacturing but i guess it's energy energy water energy and and human resources are the are the three main pieces at each of the license types whether it's manufacturing cultivation or retail I mean, there's other license types. There's distribution and there's social consumption. Um, distribution is is you know it's fairly low impact on an employee side. It's like a it's like a taxi company, right? You need dispatch, you need a warehouse, and you need vehicle a fleet of vehicles. Um, so you but you could talk about energy efficiency of those electric vehicles versus diesel versus gasoline. You know what are you driving? Um, and um, right. So there's you know, each license type, whatever you go for. Uh, could have an impact on your environment on your neighborhood and that and promoting that those sustainable efforts is really good for you know i, I told you i talked about cannabis as a good neighbor you want to yeah. talk to your community you want to let them know what you're doing you need to promote those aspects of sustainability to your local planning board to the mayor to the to the town council to the neighbors to your customers that come to the store um and I know odor is like a big thing everybody's talking about in New York, especially because we're, I think, one of the only states where everybody could smoke on the streets. And it's just one big, it's one big billow of smoke out there. And um, so 
And I, I know I also spoke to someone who was building out a smoking lounge in Denver, and he was going through a lot of problems trying to control, I guess, different things that they required for odor control. So yeah. are, there, are there new technologies that need to be developed for that? Because it, this is kind of a new problem, or are there other other elements right. that are you can apply to it? They are existing technologies that we're adapting to the cannabis space when it comes to cultivation. So a lot of communities, mm -hmm. uh, cultivation licenses will locate themselves within communities, right? So, you know, um, the output from that facility needs to be managed in a way that you develop friendly neighbors, right? You don't upset folks. Not everybody likes the smell of cannabis. I prefer that to this to the typical smell of a New York subway or to the, you know, <laughs> um, right. So I think there's benefits to that in the city of New York, but in smaller suburban and upstate communities where you're putting a cultivation facility in a potentially up against adjacent to maybe a, a, re a residential community, I think it's responsible to adapt technological odor control methods. And they're not onerous. They're not onerous. Um, but they need to be, they're a part of a protocol of any business operation. You have to follow them. Uh, and we present in planning boards all the time on how best practice allows that to work. And they can be monitored and they can be measured. Noise is another big impact because cannabis facilities run 24-7, especially cultivation facilities. They run 24-7. And one of the most efficient, energy efficient systems is uh, evaporative cooling. As a, as a technique for producing hot water and cold water. And that evaporative cooler has a high noise uh, sound coefficient, a high uh, decibel level. Uh, and so many times we put sound walls around those when they're up against a residential neighborhood uh, to mitigate the sound. So the odor and sound in the, are the biggest impactors on the community when it comes to cultivation. Mm. Uh, retail, uh, New York does not allow open containers, right? So you don't get the big glass jar, you unscrew the top and you use the tongs to bring out the buds. That's an open container, Colorado. They do that all the time. New York, everything's packaged at the manufacturer or it's packaged at the farm and it's delivered to the retail in a, pa in a sealed package. So the, the odor level doesn't go away, but it's much less than it is at the manufacturing site than it is at the, at the farm. Retail is a bit easier to control from that matter. And retail is always adjacent to a nail salon and a, and a dry cleaner and a restaurant, right? Retail wants to be in the thick of it. You want your retail store where high traffic on a Saturday, you go and you do your dry cleaning and you get your nails done and you pick up the weed and you go to the liquor store and you buy the party goods for later. And right. It should be part of your routine. The cannabis is part of everybody's routine. So you want to put the retail store right there where everybody's shopping anyway, right? You go to Target and then you pick up some weed and you go home and whatever, throw the party, backyard party. Mm -hmm. um, their odor is easier to control because the, the main concentration is the vault. And so if you manage the odor in the vault properly, it's, it, it's not as big of an impact. Oh, it's the vault that every dispensary is required to have. As, as, That's as, where all your product is contained, right? So if there's odor going to really drop you keep this, the floor, the sales floor, those are dummy packages. They're not live product mm -hmm. on the sales floor. It's not like going to Whole Foods and picking out things from the aisle. 
they're all live product in New York and in most states, you can't have live product on the floor. You identify what you want to buy, but it's behind the counter that the vault is fulfilling your order and they hand you your package of everything already stapled and closed with the receipt on it. As far as community boards and any that you've had to deal with before, so you're saying that the the odor, the smell, or the odor and the sound, yep. and what are some other really big uh, concerns? Traffic. Like Traffic. Traffic. We epically here in Massachusetts launched the retail, adult use retail program. Um, two stores opened, uh, one in Leicester, Massachusetts, and one in uh, Northampton. I think they opened on the same day, which was the Black Friday, right, uh, after Thanksgiving. And the one in Leicester, Mass, opened on, it was on the only road that gave access to the to the Walmart. So you had oh, confidence, wow. right? And no one really talked about why the traffic was so out of control, but every police department and every planning board for the next year and a half threw their arms up and they forced unnecessary traffic studies onto retail operators because they were deathly afraid that they would have the same thing happen in their in their town. And this is just bad information. It's like, oh, perfect storm, like the one road to the Walmart and the one cannabis store and everybody was trying to get through that one two lane road. It was just nuts. Mm. That's not gonna happen again. It just isn't. Right, so right. Get more stores spread out. You don't get the same over-concentration of, of traffic. Right, and how about security? I'm sure, I mean, maybe that's just the store's concern for the safety of them and their you know, but is that a, a concern for? Absolutely concerned. There are ne'er-do-wells, you know, everywhere. Um, I think the Northwest reports a lot more smash and grabs than we've seen in the Northeast. We're not, it's, it's, it's not as high a cash um, intensive, right? Many more customers are using cards, but still cash is what, ne'er-do-wells, I'll call them robbers, any kind of buddy wants, wants to smash it because the packages are all empty and you're not getting into the vault. Right. So really what they're after is what's in the till. They're literally just after what's in the till, just like they would be at a, at a convenience store. You know, presuming that the product, you know, a, 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 a liter bottle of Diet Pepsi is really not what you're going to, you know, put somebody in harm's way over, right? Maybe you would over presumably the value of cannabis once you realize that there's no cannabis on the shelves why are you breaking into this facility right and it's ultimately it's just for cash mm -hmm. um so there are real concerns and i think until this completely normalizes nationally um yeah we have to combine we have to comply with every state's uh security requirements and then every state defines the security requirements in their state and every licensed facility abides by those laws. Uh, so cameras, key card access, punch access, uh, glass breaks on the, you know, you know, so you can emergency alarms if you're held at gunpoint, all these things are normal and um, higher than they are at Whole Foods, higher than they are at the nail salon, but, you know, uh, reasonable within the, within the cannabis space. Um, reasonable for employee safety, public safety, given there's still a lot of stigma out there around cannabis.
So do you see the future of dispensaries staying the same? Like where, where there's, you know, it's not like going into a regular store, picking up product and, and how, you know, you could, the design, the stores that you're designing are good, you know, flow through traffic to get to the bud tender, get out, whatever. But, you know, so many people are used to, they just want to go in and flip the package, look, you know, look it over or just start looking on shelves. Do you think that's going to change in the future? Are people talking about wanting to uh, change? Absolutely. And I absolutely hope so as an architect, as a designer, and as a customer, as a shopper. Yeah. I want, so one of the big divisions in retail is experiential retail versus transactional retail. And I think we're only tip of the iceberg right now in, 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 in cannabis, right? Great example is that in New York, right? There was a, there was an article. I read this in, a, I read an article about this store. I haven't, haven't been into the store, the city that never sleeps. There are mattress. There's a mattress retailer in Manhattan where you can go in and for 25 bucks, you can lie down in an isolation chamber on their mattress and you can get a 45 minute snooze. Hmm. That's the way to sell mattresses, right? You know, in the city that never sleeps, you want to get a good night's rest, buy our mattress here, test it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah, they do have so those. Think about that as a retail experience. That's an experience. That's not transactional retail. That's experiential retail. Come on into our store, experience this product and think about taking it home with you or having it delivered on the weekend. Cannabis is just at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the opportunities in experiential retail right think about what nike did to retailing back in the 90s in the docklands in 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 london and nike town across the united states they built these stores that were not necessarily designed to drive revenue to 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 square footage retail revenue they were there to drive the brand so planet 13 and out, out in 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 las vegas is doing this um, others are trying to do this, which is where you really introduce people to your brand and you're not overly concerned with how many dollars per square foot your store is doing on a ROI basis, but really you're getting your name out there. You're building a customer base. You're building a, a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even touched that yet in the cannabis space, barely touched that. So there's enormous opportunity for cannabis retail to evolve over where it is today. Right. And I see a smoking lounge and in, in dispensaries, like just a place you can just kick, go, Hey, you want to sit down and grab an iced tea and we'll, you know, have a gummy or a smoke or whatever you want to do a dab, you pick up a puff coat, you know, things like that. Well, you know, I've been, I told you a year and a half, I've been working with the DASNY program. My head was blown open when DASNY came on a call with all of us and said, you know, that every card applicant gets a consumption lounge license along with their retail license i was just like oh, oh i didn't know that where was that written down how come we weren't told about that so they're like can you compress the store design you're doing for the dasney program so that the licensee has an extra 500 or 800 square feet somewhere in the store and they could do they could do a consumption lounge now that we need to investigate i haven't read the, the faqs on this new license type but shouldn't everybody be allowed to do that who's opening up who's getting a retail license in new york yes absolutely right? right that should be completely common and accessible and able to do that in california you can do that now there you can you could sit in the store and light up 
um, in dispensaries that I've been in in San Francisco. Not every dispensary has space to do that, but a number of them do, and it's not against the law, and it's not, you know, it's 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 not onerous, right? Whether you smoke it in the store or stand out in the street and smoke it, it's going to get consumed. So why not make that part of the retail experience? Or have the retail experience on the left side of the store, and on the right-hand side, you could walk into a, into a room. The other thing I want to emphasize is that not social consumption does not always mean smoking. There are so many ways to consume cannabis that extra HVAC and all the things involved in smoke and employee health that are working in that space do not have to be impacted. The way that bars, working in bars back in the day when we could all smoke cigarettes in bars, not a good idea. But cannabis has so many different form factors, unlike tobacco, that has only two or three, that you don't have to associate a smoking lounge or a hookah lounge with a cannabis consumption. You could have a recce and and yoga and Pilates studio that uses topicals and oh right? yeah yeah mm-hmm. that is just as much social consumption as this sort of old version of a of a smoking lounge when like a cigar bar if you think about that right right it doesn't have to be that that stereotypical image is not what we need to be building we need to be building this idea of health and wellness and a spa. Like, let's get Canyon Ranch to open up in the Catskills and have, you know, a full cannabis entourage. Oh, my gosh. There's so we have so far to go there. It, oh, it, yeah. I know, like you as a designer, you just architect, you must just think about all the possibilities. And and I guess we'll just end with um, I, I guess it are you, you've named a lot, but are there any um, like big challenges that you come across or? I guess that like finance is the biggest fine access to capital is the biggest hurdle anywhere, whether, you know, whether, whether you've been impacted by the war on drugs, whether you're black or Brown or BIPOC community, it's so, uh, uh, access to capital is the biggest hurdle right now. Um, rescheduling or descheduling may have an effect. I hope it does. I hope it happens. It could affect taxes. It could affect safe banking. Um, the tax burden alone, 280E on the tax code alone would be a huge benefit um, at every entry point into the cannabis market. Uh, so, And we need, we need investors. I mean, we just don't really, I mean, I don't know. Some people say, what are you talking about? There's tons of investors out there, but it's just- There's no, pre, there's no pre-revenue. There's very hard to get money pre-revenue. So if you're trying to get to revenue, you're trying to find the money to hire a you know a core staff and secure real estate and hire a design team and hire a contractor that's all pre-revenue that's the hard part of finance once you're up and running once you let's say own the real estate and you've got a year's worth of revenue and you're doing three million five million dollars a year maybe you're doing a million dollars a month there are stores in massachusetts doing a million dollars a month that is easier to finance Sit down, look at your books, understand your 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 pro forma, understand your employee burden, understand your 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 tax burden, and understand what you're doing on a monthly or daily basis. That's easier to find finance for. So it depends on where in the development arc you are as an entrepreneur that where you need capital. And the hardest money to find is pre-revenue. Mm. Easier to find money to get your second store open or your third store open. That's a lot easier to find. And there's so many new entrepreneurs out there, you know, the the independent 
bootstrapping entrepreneurs and 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 this is an an emerging industry so it's not all corporate money and there's no investment it's a crazy time i don't even know where you're sitting it's got to be pretty tough actually (laughs) never say no never say no to a cannabis cannabis developer because they've been told no their entire life Mm. no you can't smoke weed behind the gym no you can't grow weed in mom's basement and no, you can't have $12 million for your dream cannabis. Everybody's been told no. We've all been told no. I lump myself into that group. So it will find a way. Cannabis, you know, it's called weed for a reason. It grows in sidewalk cracks. It, <laughs> it, it will find a way. Weed yeah. will find a way. Yeah, we just got we just got to hang in there, I guess. But um, well, thank you, Brian, for joining me. I'm really glad that we met, and um, it was enlightening. Thank you so much. I look forward to listening to your future podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.